News Talk Breakfast with Kira Kelly and Shane Coleman. In association with AIR on News Talk. British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has said that she intends to introduce legislation in the coming weeks to make changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And for more on this and more, I'm joined by Thonishta Leo Varadkar. Good morning to you, Thonishta. It says in the front of the Irish uh, Times that the government here has reacted with public disappointment and private anger at this. How strained are Irish-British government relations at the moment? Well, they're they're not good, quite frankly. Um, it's a far cry from uh, 2011 or 2012 when I suppose relations were at their best. Um, uh, since then, Brexit, Brexit has happened uh, and the refusal of the British government to honour its agreements, to honour the withdrawal agreement, including the protocol, uh, has put um, diplomatic relations in a very difficult place. Um, as always, we're going to be the grown-ups in the room. Uh, we're going to try and engage with the British government through the European Union, uh, try to come up with solutions. Um, but it's a difficult position to be in because, uh, just like all European capitals and all European governments, we have difficulty uh, knowing whether we can trust this British government. Uh, if we make an agreement with them, will they honour it? Um, if we make concessions, will they make concessions back in return? That's how negotiations tend to work, or will they just bank the concessions that we make um, and then look for more? Um, But I think the most important thing that we should bear in mind here is that the protocol is working. Uh, There is no hard border between North and South. Uh, The integrity of the single market is protected. The Republic of Ireland's place in that market, which is really important for us in terms of jobs and uh, our economy, is protected. And North-South trade uh, is doing better than than ever before. Um, And we also had assembly elections in Northern Ireland only a week or so ago. And the vast majority of people um, elected to that assembly don't want the protocol scrapped, maybe modified, maybe changed, maybe be improved, but certainly don't want it scrapped or deleted. And that's a very, I, I, I suppose, Irish point of view. We spoke to Dominic Gree, former Attorney General, earlier on on the programme, and he says he has, he's no fan of Boris Johnson, but he has some sympathy for those who have issues with the protocol because he said they have, it has created, you know, we have good north-south trade, but east-west trade, there are expensive and bureaucratic uh, uh, elements to that that he says has made it expensive for people to do business between two parts of the same country and he understands unionist frustration with it. Do you understand it? Oh, I do. And I absolutely understand that um, uh, point of view. Um, uh, It is, however, not a consequence of the protocol per se. It's a consequence of Brexit. So uh, once the United Kingdom decided to join the European Union, um, there were going to be checks somewhere uh, and there were going to be additional costs uh, and additional regulatory burdens no matter what. And uh, Dominic Grieve was one of those British Conservative politicians who opposed Brexit. Mm -hmm. And that would have been one of the arguments he made uh, against Brexit at the time. So um, Brexit causes checks and costs and bureaucracy he and did, cost jobs. He did say he trade. thought 90% of the checks east-west could be scrapped. I'm not sure about 90%, but you know, I do think the protocol should remain in place. Uh, that does now appear to be the position of the British government, again, that they want it reformed. Um, and we're happy to talk about that. Um, that's done between the EU and the UK. Uh, I think we can come up with solutions. Uh, but again, there is an atmosphere uh, of distrust. And that's an understandable atmosphere because um, this is a British government that uh, has broken its agreements, um, is openly talking about uh, violating international law. Um, and there's a big concern in European capitals, including Dublin, that 
uh, like I say, any concession that we might make uh, could be banked and we'll get nothing in return. Any agreement we make uh, could be breached. So I think the British government needs to do a lot of work really to restore trust. Um, and again, also needs to bear in mind uh, the result of the elections in, Nor- in Northern okay. Ireland. But you know, President they... Johnson talks about um, being uh, an advocate for the union, um, has described himself as the minister for the union. Uh, he must understand what it does to the union if you continue to impose on parts of the United Kingdom uh, solutions it doesn't want. Yes, and, and I think a lot of people here w- would agree with, with all of those points. But there did seem to be some noises from the EU last night about compromises that they might be willing to make in order to, I suppose, facilitate some some degree of comfort for the British government. Uh, well, like I say, you know, the European Union has been very flexible, uh, has engaged um, in a non-dramatic, uh, technocratic, um, grown-up um, way in the way the European Union usually does. And Vice President Zeskovic, who's in charge of this file, has been to Northern Ireland, met with the parties, met with the business leaders, um, heard what they've had to say, and has actually come up with solutions. So, you know, one of the issues that arose some time ago was around the free flow of medicines from Britain yeah. to Northern Ireland. Um, that's been resolved. You know, that was resolved. Um, unilaterally by the EU, you know, so it seems that when the EU, t- EU takes unilateral action, actions, it's about finding solutions. When the UK threatens and do you, to take unilateral to, actions, it's kind do, of the opposite. Do you think that that if if those same kinds of, uh, I suppose, accommodations that were, were made around medicine were rolled out to other customs check, maybe around food and things like that, that we would see? progress from the stalemate. Is that likely? I know that Liz Trust has said that, that she'd be willing to override any new legislation the UK might bring about if they could reach agreement with the EU on this. That does sound a little bit like an olive branch. Well, I suppose we just don't know. You know, there's been very little uh, engagement from the British government in the past few months. Um, understandably, the focus has been on the situation in Ukraine and um, elections in, in England and Scotland and Wales and, and Northern Ireland and other issues. So uh, I think probably the best thing now would be for uh, the British government to engage um, properly with the European Union again and to withdraw any threats of unilateral action. Um, I do think one thing as well, though, should be borne in mind, you know, one of the ideas being put forward, which I think is probably probably possible within the, within the confines of the protocol is a trusted trader system. So, you know, allowing, for example, um, Marks and Spencers or Asda or Tesco to um, send stuff into Northern Ireland from Britain without checks, knowing that it's going to only go to their stores in Northern Ireland. This idea Ireland, of a, of a green know, so. channel, that this idea. Uh, a trusted trader scheme is the way they, the way they describe it. But I, I, I think one thing that has to be considered about that is, is that definitely something that will say the Ulster Farmers Union or the DUP would want because potentially what that could mean is down the line uh, if Britain does trade deals with third countries it could mean uh, hormone beef from uh, America it could mean chlorinated chicken from Asia it could mean um, you know pork for example from Brazil um, going from Britain freely into Northern Ireland and uh, displacing products made by uh, Ulster farmers so a bit like Brexit it would just be a good idea to check with the Northern Ireland executive if there was one um, Mm. as to whether they really want that solution because it mightn't actually be a good thing for Northern Ireland maybe it would but the absence of an executive is a real problem because what we have is uh, party leaders speaking for themselves uh, speaking for uh, their own uh, communities, but nobody who can actually speak for Northern Ireland. And that's why I think it's really important that uh, we should have a Northern Ireland executive up and running uh, so that somebody can speak for Northern Ireland in in these negotiations on any changes to the protocol. The Northern Ireland Assembly, were it active, would have the power to uh, uh, disapply the protocol. Do you think that that one of the reasons is that it's not up and running is because they don't want to put that to the test, the DUP? 
Well, you know, that was something that I negotiated in, in Bar- with Boris Johnson. We sketched, sketched that out in the world um, some years ago, and this was the idea of democratic consent. Uh, and it's very clear that the protocol can be disapplied by the Northern Ireland Assembly uh, in uh, 2024. It doesn't arise until 2024, so it's not an immediate issue at the moment. Um, but that is, you know, a democratic clause that is in there. Uh, and it's very clear from the results of the election, um, particularly with the performance of the Alliance Party, uh, which is largely in favour of the protocol, uh, that the Assembly would not uh, disapply it. Yes. So uh, any attempt to disapply it would be a unilateral act being taken by the British government against the wishes of the majority of people in Northern Ireland. Uh, it would be a form of minority rule. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm baffled that people in London who uh, talk about defending the Union would consider such a thing because it's that kind of um, actions that drive people towards nationalism in Scotland and Northern Ireland, uh, the view that London will impose solutions okay. on them without consultation, without their without their consent. Okay, can we move on to the National Maternity Hospital? Obviously, the National Maternity Hospital, the relocation of it was approved by Cabinet yesterday, but not without some dissent, even within government TDs. Nasa Horican and potentially Patrick Costello have both said if it does go to a vote in the House today that they would vote NASA has said against government and Patrick Costello is 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 saying he has uh, still to decide. What would that mean? If we were to see government TDs breaking rank on this, what would that mean? Well, you know, I think um, we shouldn't lose sight of what we're trying to achieve here, and uh, that is to build a state-of-the-art national maternity hospital, uh, single rooms for every woman, um, and five new theatres, which will make a big difference in terms of gynaecology waiting lists, um, and also one that is co-located with a major adult teaching academic hospital, which is St. Vincent, so that if something goes wrong, uh, if a woman has a stroke, major hemorrhage, uh, heart problems, um, vascular problems can be in the ICU or can be with the adult specialist team uh, within minutes rather than having to be transferred through the streets of Dublin by ambulance. So that's what we're trying to achieve, and uh, we want this under construction. I want to go to tender as soon as possible, and uh, ideally under construction next year uh, so that it can be available for women and children in four or five years time that's the kind of timeline we're working on. You yourself though said a year ago that the the state owning the National Maternity Hospital was a red line for government do you believe that this deal actually achieves that? We don't own the land? Uh, I do Um, we do own the hospital the building uh, the bricks and mortar and uh, we have a 300-year lease. Now, that is a form of ownership. Um, there's two forms of ownership, as you know. One is freehold, the other is leasehold. Uh, and a 300-year lease constitutes um, what they call uh, solid title uh, and freehold title. So that constitutes ownership. It may not be, may not be freehold, which I think would be ideal. Um, but I understand why that's not possible. Um, and sometimes the perfect can be the enemy of the very, very good. Uh, and this is very, very good. And, you know, despite what some people are saying, you know, it is going to be a secular hospital. Uh, any procedure that is uh, lawful in the state will be provided there as it is now. Um, unlike the current situation, uh, the minister, the government will have representatives on the board. Uh, the uh, archbishop and the priest who are currently on the board uh, will be gone. Um, and uh, and as the case um, in Vincent's as well. And the that idea that has been floated secular, that a future Conservative Minister for Health would be able to undermine with this, I suppose, um, golden seat, golden chair, that they would be able to undermine some of the the practices that might be engaged with in the National Maternity Hospital. Do you believe that's a possibility? I think it's highly improbable, um, but, you know, we are a democracy and uh, it's not impossible that... um, uh, 
the people of Ireland um, might elect a uh, conservative government uh, in the future that has a different view on these things. But, you know, we are a democracy okay. in the same way as the constitution can be changed. It can be changed back again. But, uh, and I and maybe lastly on this, do you think that if, if government TDs were to vote against the government in the event of a vote, which may or may not take place later on today, that they should be sanctioned? Well, you know, I, I think that's inevitable. Um, you know, governments... Uh, have so you don't be, believe there should be a, fr- a free vote on this? There's been a, a float of the idea that there might be a free vote on this. Uh, there won't be on this matter. There can be free votes on certain matters, but certainly the government hasn't decided uh, that there should be a free vote. So sanctions would be inevitable. I know you've been talking uh, as well about remote working and working from home. Um, some interesting figures have come out on, on, on the amount of money somebody might save by working from home. Is that something that's going to be factored into how, how we approach this going forward? Well, as you know, I'm I'm a big fan of remote working and so is the government. Um, It can be one of the uh, dividends from the pandemic uh, that we have more remote working, more hybrid working, uh, you know, which is people working sometimes in the office or HQ and other times from home or remote hub, uh, particularly in rural Ireland. Um, We think it can be particularly beneficial for rural Ireland as well in terms of having more people uh, being able to live and work in uh, small towns and villages around the country. Um, And the research that we've done uh, does indicate two significant upsides from remote working. Um, One is that it's easier for people uh, with caring responsibilities, particularly parents, uh, and also people with disabilities to uh, enter and stay in the workforce. Uh, And the other is that it can produce savings. Uh, You know, we're all very aware of the uh, very high cost at the moment of commuting because of uh, the price of petrol and diesel. Uh, And it does indicate that um, the savings that you can make from commuting um, are greater than the additional costs, if you like, that might arise from uh, higher... It sounds wonderful. I suppose it it raises the question then, is it too easy for employers to turn down workers working from home, considering all the benefits and the knock-on effects even for society and carbon emissions, etc., in allowing people to do so? Well, I think I think what's happening in practice is that employers, uh, you know, are being very flexible. It's quite hard to uh, retain and recruit staff at the moment. We're heading towards full employment. I believe we may achieve that target of 2.5 million people at work uh, by the end of the year. Uh, and the vast majority of employers are being flexible. Now, you always have to make sure that... Um, public services and the services that the public need are delivered uh, and you need to make sure that business performance isn't affected um, but you know what I'm hearing on the ground in the vast majority of cases is employers and employers are uh, sorting this out uh, for themselves um, in the workplace and are being very pragmatic about it um, but I would So you what think I do we've, we've gotten the balance right in terms of working from home being able to request it? Uh, I don't think um, everyone's got the balance right in every single workplace. I do think that is the case uh, in the round, but I still want to press ahead with legislation to uh, create a framework, a right to request remote working. Um, so where an employer is being unreasonable or is refusing it or won't engage with an employer or an employee that they would have a new right to do so. So that's with the Joint Oireachtas Committee at the moment. They're listening to all sides, hearing all the arguments. They're going to report back to me and then I shall be able to press forward with it in the autumn. Okay. Uh, and speaking of balancing, I know some uh, insurance reforms, rebalancing of the duty of care is on the cards. Uh, uh, Lots of headlines today about the fact that if somebody, (laughs) the urban myth of somebody breaking into your house and and breaking their ankle and suing you, that's one aspect of it. But there's some very interesting stuff on on the rebalancing of rights between people maybe on a business premises having reckless disregard for their own personal responsibility. We're, We're putting, we're going to put more, I suppose, emphasis on people taking care of themselves if they go into a shop or into a, a gym or those kinds of things. Is that right? 
Well, what we're trying to achieve here is reduction in the cost of insurance for uh, consumers and for businesses. So uh, we've made some progress on motor insurance that's been coming down for the last couple of years. Um, I'm confident home insurance will come down this year. Um, but what hasn't really been coming down is what's called EL and PL, that's public liability and employer liability insurance uh, for business people and also sports clubs and community centres. Um, so we're doing a few things uh, to try and uh, bring down the cost of insurance for business and community groups. Uh, and what we decided yesterday at Cabinet, uh, led by Minister Helen McEntee, uh, is a change in the law around the duty of care. And that's to rebalance, um, essentially, the, 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 to rebalance the level of responsibility a little bit away from okay. Do you uh, think many people who make claims, make claims Thonish, though, have shown reckless disregard for their own um, personal safety on, on business premises? I think there have been cases where um, people who entered a, a business pre- premises or um, a sports club, for example, with, with, with the view to committing a crime, then actually sued for getting injured. So like, that's not going to be allowed anymore. That's a significant change. Um, also, uh, at the moment, you know, if you come into a business premises or say maybe an adventure centre, for example, or a sports club, and uh, you, know, you sign a waiver acknowledging that uh, you're taking a certain risk or you're fully briefed verbally on the risks you're taking, that counts for very little now. Um, we think that should count for more. You know, people do take a risk, for example, if you go paintballing or if you go um, abseiling or whatever, um, that needs to be taken into account a bit more. Um, and also, of course, uh, the, the, the burden of responsibility on somebody who runs a premises is still there, but it you know, just needs to be rebalanced a bit, and okay. that's what this legislation is about. And lastly, Thonista, a very good month for trade figures. Will it be enough to offset all the doom and gloom coming down the tracks for the economy? It's actually the best month ever for trade in Ireland. So our exports in March of 2022 were the highest ever. Um, and, you know, that's not just statistics. Um, behind that are jobs and businesses and uh, revenues um, coming to the government, uh, which we can use to help people, for example, um, with the burden of, of the high cost of living. So um, while other countries may be heading into recession, uh, I think we can avoid that. Um, and I know there's a lot of concern uh, among the public now about the cost of living, um, less about where we are now and more about where we're going if it continues to rise. But, uh, you know, the economic performance uh, is very strong. And while other countries um, like Britain, for example, are, are raising taxes, I, I don't think we're going to have to do that. We may be able to go in the other direction. Um, and while there's a lot of uncertainty because of uh, the situation in Ukraine and the high cost of energy prices, I think the fact that we see such strong jobs figures, such strong investment figures, such strong trade okay. figures uh, should give us some grounds for co- hope and comfort. Thomas Dilly of Radcliffe, thank you very much for speaking to News Talk Breakfast. News Talk Breakfast with Kira Kelly and Shane Coleman. In association with AIR. Weekday mornings at 7 on News Talk.